It's great to see you today. I was uh, driving in, as I always do on a Sunday morning, shocked that um, so few cars are on the road. And it's strange, sometimes when you drive around, you, I, I kind of go, okay, Lord, did you come back and didn't tell me or something? There really are some days when you think, there's literally nobody here. But I was driving down um, Far Hills, and there on the corner of, um, of Stroop, there's a, I think there's a gas station that's getting some renovation going on, and there's a crane there. And as so often with cranes on, on, um, on holidays, there's a, a flag flying. And I noticed it, and I thought, I, I don't know that. It seems as though the flag looks brighter today somehow. And I looked to see if the sun was on. It, there was nothing specific. And I just, uh, I just paused a while at uh, at the light there, and I just said, to the "Lord, is there is there anything about that?" Because I looked at all the other flags that were around, and they didn't look particularly bright. And I felt like the Lord said, "I felt like the Lord said." There is a bright future for this nation. And I'm going to stay faithful to the promise I made. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to share that with the congregation as I get in this morning. Because it felt like a real encouragement to me. I'm sure that you, like me, struggle with lots of things going on. But, um, but there it is. That's my, uh, that was my little word from, from the Lord today. That's not what we're going to speak about, but it's kind of encouraging. What we're going to do today is we're going to continue with this theme of mission and vision. What is it, what is it like for us as individuals to operate as Christians functioning in the community, the fellowship of the church, leading out toward the place where Jesus is calling us to reach the unsaved, the unchurched, the lost, the pre-Christian, whichever word is the one that's most appropriate to you, but of course, we're going to be using language that is most appropriate for the people that we're seeking to share the love of God with. As we reach out, what is it like for us to follow a vision in our workplace, in our family, in our community? What is it like for us to gather a vision, to, to hear a vision, to, to be disciplined by that vision? Last week, we listened and looked a little bit into what it means for us to receive a vision as we, as we hear the Word of God to us personally. And we looked at some of the ways in which that vision functions in our heart to place upon us the constraints necessary, not constraints that we don't willingly take on, but constraints that we gladly accept and embrace as personal disciplines to see the vision fulfilled. So last week, we looked at the, if you like, the how and the, the what. And, um, and this week, we're going to look at the who and the what. Because, of course, the thing about us is that we're Christians. And because we're Christians, there is a location that we, that we focus on. There is a, there's a place, there's a person that we look to. That person that we look to is the one who gives us the revelation that breaks out in our heart, that gives us a vision for how to raise our children, that gives us a vision for how to function in our workplace, that gives us a vision of how to reach out to our neighbors. But that person is not only the one who's able to speak to us, but he is the perfect model for us to imitate. And so we're going to look at that a little bit today, 
and come to something of an understanding, I hope, of how it is that the Scriptures speak to us about how it is that we can focus on the person of Jesus, imitate his life in the process of wrestling with and receiving a vision for our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 is always a great place to go to. I, uh, I told the tech team that I'd read from verse 2. I'm actually going to read from verse 1. It's just there to keep them on their toes. hope that's all right, Claude. Sorry about that. There he is. He's got it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the audience to which the writer is, is addressing these thoughts as he unfolds this remarkable revelation of the, of the book of Hebrews, the audience is a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who probably located in the Holy Land are beginning to recognize that there are all kinds of tensions and challenges bubbling up from, as it were, below the surface of the wider community. The zealots and the freedom fighters who will lead the, the people of Israel into a rebellion against Rome are beginning to find voice, are beginning to speak their mind. And the one or two uh, little skirmishes that, um, that you see begin to roll into all-out war. It doesn't end well for the Jewish people. Of course, we know that by AD 72, the rebellion that begins in 66 is crushed mercilessly by the Roman legions. But these things are going on, and, and of course, it's causing people to think about what their identity is, where their loyalties lie, and of course, there's this whole question as to whether the followers of Jesus are really loyal Jews. And so the writer here is saying, not only are you loyal to your heritage and your identity, but you are the fulfillment of it because you're following one who is greater than Moses. You're following one who is greater than anyone in all of our illustrious history because he's not only the Son of God, he's the Savior of the world, and as the Savior of the world, he is the one to whom all your affections and all your intentions and actions in the future need to be focused. And so here's the writer saying, don't lose heart, and he, he paints this picture in chapter 11 of all of the, the great heroes of faith, and then he says, those heroes of the faith are gathered in a great audience, a great crowd, a great assembly. It's as though you've been running the marathon, and the 26 miles of the marathon have been way out in the, in the country. Maybe at times you feel you've been running through the wasteland, but, but now you're coming into the arena, and the crowd is rising to their feet, and the heroes of the past are cheering you on. And as you make this final lap, do not lose heart. 
Focus on the pace setter. Focus on the one who is leading the race. Focus on the one who's gone before you and see how he is continuing. See and think about all of the things that that he's had to go through to make it possible for you to even be in the race. And so the writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now that's, I mean, a marvelous message, but it's not today's message. It's a good message, and it's one that perhaps somebody needed to hear someplace. But it's not today's message, because today's message is looking at what else is in this verse. The amazing thing about the Scriptures is you can read a whole book and you can get the big idea, the one big idea. Or you can look at one verse and you can get like 20 things out of it. Like we were saying earlier, the thing about the Discovery Bible community is that God is speaking to lots and lots of different people as you gather around the text. And the one idea that you have is now supported and, 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 and somehow enhanced by the many other ideas that the Holy Spirit is fashioning in their hearts and forming together to kind of create this more complete picture of the Scriptures. To be able to do that, of course, we all need to have our own understanding that we can hear God for ourselves and that we have a voice that will be heard by others. And so implicit within the whole process of discipleship, something that, of course, I've become completely committed to throughout my adult life, along with Sally, implicit to that process of discipleship is the understanding that you can hear God for yourself and your voice is heard and valuable. And as we look at this verse, we see the multiplicity of things that you can receive from it. And as I've listened to others, as they've shared on this verse, so I've looked at other places that perhaps I wouldn't have noticed before. Being the kind of person that I am, being the the kind of go for it, kind of pioneering type that I am, of course I would think about not giving up, continuing to the end, making sure that the stamina and strength enough to keep going in the face of difficulties, challenges, or rivalry. But it's interesting, isn't it? The way that Jesus is described here. We're to fix our eyes on him who is the author and the perfecter. It's interesting. These words are really chosen carefully by the writer. The author and perfecter. The word author indicates one who is out ahead and probably for us would be better translated pioneer, frontiersman. He's the the pioneer of our faith and he's the perfecter. Now, perfecter is good. I like pioneer and perfecter because, of course, it's alliterated and if it's alliterated, it must be God. But that, that word perfecter is probably better articulated with the word that, I mean, frankly, you wouldn't normally use in a conversation, the word completer, the one who completes, maybe finisher, using a, using a, a, a sports metaphor might, might help us more, but, but the one who completes our faith, continues it to the point where it's completed, whole, finished, substantial, 
and is able to be passed on. So Jesus, the one who we are to focus on, the one to, to whom we are to fix our attentions and affections, is the pioneer and the perfecter. The writer is wanting us to look to Jesus because, of course, he's saying more than it's about observation, he's saying it's about observation and imitation. Imitation in keeping going to the end, imitation in understanding that as you see Jesus and as the vision of his life begins to break out in your heart, the way that you will be fulfilled in the vision that he gives you personally, the vision that is birthed in you as a family, the vision that breaks out in you as a community is a vision that will be pioneered and perfected as you follow him. So let's, let's look a little more carefully at what it is that the writer is saying. What is it that Jesus is doing when we read about him in the scriptures? Well, simply put, Jesus is living in three dimensions. Now, of course, I know he's living in four dimensions in the, in the kind of physical, scientific sense. And, of course, the physicists are going to tell me that he's living in 16 dimensions, whatever. But, but in terms of his relationships, in terms of the things that we can look at, that we can grasp and embrace, Jesus is living in relationship to his Father, is living in relationship to the community of his disciples, and he's living in relationship to those who as yet are not disciples, but he longs for them to be so. And so Jesus is living in this world where his life is defined by different relationships that he's attending to. And when we look at his his relationship with the Father, it, it causes our heart to burn within us. The disciples in Luke 11, verse 1, hear Jesus praying. And just because they hear him praying, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's not many times that I hear other people praying, and I think, I'd like them to teach me how to pray. I mean, occasionally it happens. But, but Jesus, just by the fact of praying, elicited a response in his disciples that, that made them say, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. And as the writer here in Hebrews says earlier in the book, Jesus was incredibly demonstrative in his prayers with, with moans and wails. He would bring his petitions to the Father in Chapter 10 of Luke, he welcomes back the, the 72 disciples who sent out on mission in the same way that he sent out the 12 to go and extend the message of the, the coming kingdom. And when they return and say all kinds of exciting things happened, he just simply bursts into praise. I praise you, Father. And it says right at the very beginning, full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. I praise you, Father, that you have kept these things from the learned and revealed them to little children. There's something about the relationship of Jesus with his Father that compels us 
to want to go further, to want to dig into that experience that he so richly enjoyed. But he also had these other relationships, these relationships with his disciples and these relationships with the people who were not yet his disciples, but that he was calling them to be that. And perhaps there we can begin to understand what it is that the writer here is describing because he's, he's describing this kind of continuum, this picture of a journey, the journey of a pioneer who in pioneering completes the process of pioneering by perfecting the work in the return journey. Now, of course, in the ancient world, the Odyssey and the Iliad, the, the picture of a journey there and a journey back was very common. Of course, all of the history of Israel was undergirded by journeying people, by women like Abraham and Sarah, like the children of Israel journeying to a place. This, this sense of journey is, is what it is that the writer is wanting to, us to grasp. He's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is a journeyman. He is a pioneer and a perfecter. He's doing something that if you watch it and imitate it, you'll be able to live out your vision to greater fruitfulness. So as you hear the Lord, even in the small things, but certainly in the large things, the writer here is saying, if you observe and imitate the life of Jesus, you will understand what it means to take on a vision and journey in the power of that vision and then in the power of that vision, complete that vision so that what you do brings glory to God and fruit to your own life. You can see it so clearly with Jesus. Jesus begins at the very center of Jewish life. Of course, we, we know him to be this somewhat disruptive character. We know that in almost every circumstance that he's in, he's, he's causing people to question. He's, he's causing people to wonder. And at times, he's challenging them to the very core of their being, turning over tables in the, in the temple. But we have to remember that Jesus had a strategy that was the unfolding of the vision that the Father had given him. Because Jesus tells us that he's only doing what he sees the Father doing. And so as the writer here tells us to focus on Jesus, we're focusing on Jesus and imitating him as he's focusing on the Father because the Father's doing the same thing. And what is he doing? He's starting at the center where all of the ministry of the people of God took place. He starts in the synagogue. He says to, he says to Peter and to Andrew, I'm, I'm coming to live with you. And they go, okay. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that he just has that kind of level of boldness. And sure enough, he, he goes and stays with them. But then the next thing, of course, he's, he's all kinds of stuff are going on in the home. He's, he's raising up Peter's mother-in-law, who's obviously sick. And there's all kinds of things going on. But but the big episode that you see him kind of part of right there in Capernaum is being in the synagogue. Now, if you go to Capernaum and 
you go to Peter's ancient home that has been absolutely certified archaeologically to be the place of the earliest Christian gatherings in history, now kind of covered by the building that protects that holy place by the Franciscans who've done an amazing work in the Holy Land to protect the holy places. If you go from there, it's just a stone's throw to the synagogue. You just walk up the street. It's right there. And there's the synagogue, and it's a big building. I mean, you get as many as, I mean, we'd get in there for sure. You get a, several hundred people in there. Jesus begins in the synagogue. And he's teaching. He's, he's sitting at Moses' seat. He's, he's unfolding the scriptures, and he's teaching the people. And as they listen, something happens. What happens, of course, is that the demons that are present in the people who've gathered for worship begin to feel uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that they have to cry out. They're in the presence of the white-hot revelation of the Son of God, and it's impossible for them to, to stay quiet. We know who you are! Jesus says, shut up and get out. And that was the end of it. And people are like, whoa. Whoa. This is kind of awesome. Let's hang out with him. So Jesus is clearly beginning at the center of religious life. But of course, he can't stay there. He's on a mission. And the mission is to everyone. The mission is to not the found, but the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so we see Jesus from Capernaum, which has become this place of revival so intense that the disciples don't even have time to eat. Now, you may have been to places like that. I've, I've certainly been in locations like that where I've been working with leaders around the world where there's a line of people outside the door and there's so many requests and so much intensity that who knows when you're going to eat? Who knows when you're going to sleep? It, it happens from time to time. And this was certainly happening in Capernaum. And Jesus, following the pattern of his life, said to the disciples, we need to step back. We're not going to improve anything by overworking and burning out. You need to come away with me and get some rest. Now, interestingly, there's all kinds of stories that are associated with that. The people follow him. He has to feed 5,000 people. Then he walks on the water. You know, just kind of normal things for Jesus in a day. And then they get out of the boat and they begin to journey away from the center. They leave the Holy Land. They, they go into Tyre and Sidon. And as they go up into Tyre and Sidon, the disciples begin to feel challenged. First of all, if you're a Jewish person, leaving the land makes you feel uncomfortable. A bit like Americans going on international trips. You know, you kind of leave the land, you're thinking, okay, nowhere else is like us. What's it going to be like? And sometimes, you know, when you've been away to a kind of a challenging kind of place, you, you come back and you just 
you know, glad when you see the flag again. Well, it's very, very similar for Jewish people. The, the, the disciples must have started to feel a little bit uncomfortable. We're outside the land. Ooh. And then this lady comes up and says, um, will you heal my daughter? She's got a demon and she's just in terrible trouble. And, and she's, a, she's a Gentile. They had all kinds of words, none of which were respectful for Gentiles. Jesus seems to confirm their prejudices when he says, well, I've got food for the children. I don't think I have food for the dogs. I'm sure the disciples went, yeah, that's right. We're with him. And he's awesome, which means probably we are too. But of course, Jesus was doing something that you see him do over and over again, and he often did it with the disciples themselves. He was squeezing the person to see if God speaking to them would get out of them. And as he squeezed the woman with his comment, she came back with this most amazing response. Yes, but even the dogs under the table get the crumbs. That's what Jesus was waiting for. That's what he was listening for. That's what he wanted. Because, of course, Jesus is not just randomly going someplace. Jesus is making the journey from the center to the edge. And here a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a woman whose daughter is demonized, would represent the very edge, the very margins, the most disenfranchised of all of the people of the planet in the minds of the disciples and the minds of the religious majority back in Israel. And Jesus says, your faith is amazing, much more amazing than these guys. Way more. Right, guys? I guess. And he heals the daughter. Jesus does it all the time. He, he goes from the center to the edge. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem because of the usual route that people take down the Jordan Rift Valley, take a right at Jericho, and then through the Wadi Keld, all the way up through the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem, he has a crowd of people that are following him. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and more and more intense. And people are really excited that he's coming through, through Jericho. And maybe as he comes to the outer districts where Herod's palace had been built, one of his favorite retreats, where the rich and the famous lived, a rich man who was small in stature, who had gathered his wealth through corrupt means, wanted just to see Jesus. So he climbed up a tree. But this man represented someone who was not simply marginalized, but was utterly hated by the Jewish people because he was part of the kind of mafioso corruption that was instigated by Rome 
to subjugate people groups throughout the empire through the process of tax gathering, which really was a way in which the people who had invested in the cost of the army to subjugate that region got their investment back. It was kind of like a capital investment scheme for the royal and noble families of Rome. And they used particular people on the ground to extract these taxes using violence and corruption. And of course, it was attached to all kinds of other things like trafficking and prostitution, all kinds of stuff. And the leaders of these things were called the tax gatherers, the tax collectors, and they were utterly despised. And this guy, he's probably got a Napoleon com complex as well because he's a little guy and so he can't see into the crowd. I mean, he's probably a real piece of work, is my guess. And he's up a tree. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. Can you imagine the shock in the people? Jesus is going from the center to the edge. But as well as going from the center to the edge, as well as pioneering, as well as pioneering the pattern of fulfilling a vision, Jesus is perfecting the means by which a vision is fulfilled. He is showing us that he's not just going to live in the margins. As so often you hear people, they say, well, you know, I, I don't really relate to church because, you know, I, I want to relate to the people out there on the margins. Good. But you're only pioneering and not perfecting. You're only beginning and not completing. Now, it may be that those folks have been so damaged by their experience of institutional church that they don't want to be part of it. I understand that. I've been damaged too. Almost everybody who's ever been part of an institution has been damaged by the weight of it. But the way that Jesus operates is fascinating. He reaches out to the margins from the center, from the center to the edge, but then from the edge to the center. Matthew one of those tax collectors, one of those people like Zacchaeus, not only gets to be one of the twelve, he writes the first book of the New Testament. I have no idea what kind of therapy Matthew needed. Can you imagine? I mean, what a messed up life he must have had. He's involved in all kinds of corruption, all kinds of, I mean, just horrible, dark life. Jesus comes to his tax booth and says, hey, come on then. Me? Yeah. And he gets to write the gospel of Matthew. What an amazing, amazing thought. Right there on the edge, a person utterly despised and disdained by everyone. A person who has to reconstruct just about every part of their life, all of their behaviors, all of their thinking, all of their relationships, just about everything that they ever do has to be rebuilt 
But in the rebuilding, Jesus is with him all the way. And he's there when he gathers his friends who are sinners and lost people. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, what kind of a guy are you anyway? You go to those kind of parties? And Jesus says, yeah, I like parties. Matthew puts it like this. Jesus came eating and drinking. Do you know it says that in the Bible? Jesus came eating and drinking. It also says he came preaching. But he, he came eating and, and you're thinking, what? But of course, if you're going to reach the edge, you've got to find people on the edge. And you've got to find people on the edge and doing what they do on the edge. And so Jesus is more than happy to be in the presence of people who might be described as prostitutes. He's happy to be in the presence of people who are part of crime families and corrupt systems. Because Jesus is making the return journey from the edge to the center. What about Saul of Tarsus? After, after the gospel story and the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross and the, and the victory displayed in his resurrection and his return to heaven in glory, he sends the Spirit and the church is baptized in the power of the Spirit and begins to continue the ministry of Jesus. And they're doing amazing things and people are seeing ex ex exceptional things in the life of the early church. And Jesus, as always, finds somebody who's a million miles from those Christians. I mean, so far from those Christians that those Christians would run, they would run a mile even to hear his voice. In fact, after he became a Christian and tried to join them, they wouldn't greet him. They wouldn't welcome him. He had to have Barnabas go and take him in because people couldn't believe it. I mean, Jesus is still up to his old antics of finding people on the edge and bringing them to the center. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, gets to write the majority of the New Testament. And he's a violent, wicked terrorist. A fundamentalist of the most extreme and violent form. From the very edge to the very center. Jesus is pioneering and perfecting. Throughout much of my life with Sally, we've heard the Lord give us this same kind of almost metronomic call. It's time to move from the center to the edge. It's time to move from the edge to the center. I was the president of my college as a, as a seminary student, which meant that I sat on the college board and met with all of the great and the good and the people who came to the place that were the kind of rich and the famous. I entertained them for dinner and Sally and I got to see some fun stuff. And, you know, in the in the kind of dreaming spires of English academia, it's kind of cool. You know, you turn up to dinners in your 
in your dinner jacket and in the case of Sally, her nice frock. And we meet all these amazing people and we do all these incredible things. And, and at the end of it, I didn't really think about it at the time, I was given the best job in the Church of England. The best job. Whenever anybody said to me, oh, so where are you going to work? And I'd tell them, they went, whoa. I spoke to my supervisor in the, um, in the, in the theology department. She said, you're set for life, brother. I said, oh, okay. Well, this amazing job that we got was offering a place for us to live in that we wouldn't be able to have children in. It was too small. It was like this tiny little wardrobe that they were offering in the middle of London, which is fine. And I mean, you know, wardrobes cost like a million dollars in London, but you can't raise a family in them. And Sally kind of tapped me on the shoulder one time. She said, I don't think we can go there because they're, they're offering this place, but they're not offering anything else. And it doesn't look like there's any way that we could, how do we start a family there? So I, I went to speak to the principal of the college and said, you know, this is what Sally thinks, and I think she's right. What do you think? Do you think you could put some pressure on them to get us a bigger place? He said, no, I don't think you can. So having been the first student set up with this amazing job, we now had no job. And it was open to us that we would join a thing called church clearing. So it's like a clearance sale. It's truly, they called it, they called it church clearing. So at the end of the process, we are in this clearance sale where all of the churches that nobody wanted to go to connected with all of the students that nobody wanted to employ. Boy, it, it was so encouraging to my spirit. <laughs> I felt awesome every day. But of course, the whole point of this was to teach me a lesson. I'm sure Sally didn't need to learn it, but it, it was a lesson that I needed to learn, which is this. If you're going to fulfill the vision that Jesus has for you, you don't follow it by just journeying on the path of human success and endeavor. You follow the path of the pioneer and the perfecter. And what we discovered was that Jesus was taking us on a journey to the poorest communities of England. And in going to those poorest communities, in going to those under-resourced, invisible communities full of struggling single mothers, full of people who had been marginalized because of their race or their color or their capacity. In those places, we learned the things that are now changing Uganda. 50,000 people are in a movement in Uganda doing the things that we learned on the margins. And eventually someone spotted what it was that we were learning and said, well, you should write a book about that. And sure enough, 
the books gave us opportunity to go from the margin to the center. And so here I am sharing with you today. How do you take the vision that God's put in your heart and unfold it in your family? Well, who's the person in your family that nobody likes? Start praying about them. Who's the person at work who nobody wants? Start thinking about them. The person, the person who has no friends. The person that's grumpy every day. You don't know why they're grumpy. You'll discover that they're probably in pain. Begin to make the journey from the place where you find affirmation and support and encouragement. Begin to make the journey to the margin. In your community, in your neighborhood, who's the family that's got a burning tire in the backyard and a pony tied up in the front? I mean, you know, that family. Maybe there's something that you need to be thinking about. I'm not asking you to go and live there. I'm just asking you to make a journey there. Because Jesus is the one that is the picture, the model. And the scriptures tell us, fix your eyes on him. He's the pioneer and the perfecter. How can you make the journey? From the center to the edge, from the edge to the center. In your house church, in your household. We're going to be looking at this a lot over these next coming weeks. And I hope that you'll feel like you've got some tools to help you think through and pray through as a, as a community. How you'll be able to do it on the college campus. How you'll be able to do it amongst your friends. And as you think through the practicalities of fixing your eyes on Jesus the one who's giving you the vision and the one who's modeling to you how to fulfill the vision, as you fix your eyes on him, you find yourself bearing fruit that you never imagined was possible. So this week, like last week, is quite practical really, isn't it? It's about the journey that you're on. It's about listening for the voice of Jesus for what it is that he's called you to do, listening to the voice of Jesus, to what it is that he's called you as a family, as a house church to do. And as you listen, look to him and say, Jesus, how is this vision unfolded from the center to the edge and from the edge to the center? Get it? We're with it? Everybody okay with that? Okay. Let's pray together.